the challenge with data protection though is that it needs to balance all of the rights and sometimes they are competing rights so that that's challenging indeed but it's important to note that the ultimate purpose of data protection is not to achieve privacy at all costs this is lock and code a malwarebytes podcast i'm your host david reese Our main story today is about data protection, a concept that, depending on the audience, seemingly has different definitions, even though it shouldn't. For companies, particularly companies in the European Union the past couple of years, data protection has become synonymous with regulation, a set of rules mandated by the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR. But For a lot of everyday consumers, data protection can sometimes be misconstrued as just plain old privacy. And then there's also a lot of mixing up between data protection and data privacy. A good example of this is that though the EU's GDPR is, like we said, the General Data Protection Regulation, it's often misattributed as the General Data Privacy Regulation. Here's another. HIPAA in the United States stands for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. But how many times have you heard someone likely mistake HIPAA for having something to do with the Health Information Privacy Sonimame? These mix-ups are often innocent. Most people are not searching the acronyms of every law on the books, and most people only really care about what a law does, not necessarily what a law says. But innocent though these mix-ups may be, there is value in precision. Which is why today, to help us understand the actual differences between data protection and privacy and data privacy, we're speaking with Gabriela Zanpier Fortuna, the Vice President for Global Privacy at Future of Privacy Forum. Gabriela, welcome to the show. Hello, David. It's such a pleasure to talk to you today about this topic and hello to your audience as well. Thank you. Yeah, we're pretty excited to have you here as well. And let's get right into it. You recently said on Twitter that you should write a book titled Privacy and Data Protection Are Two Different Things. And and you said that that book could sort of disentangle all the bad, incorrect takes that you see online that conflate these two concepts. And I think a lot of listeners might have the same sort of fuzzy understanding of these two concepts, that data protection and privacy are at least like they're similar or they're a means of achieving an end, you know, maybe one achieves the other. Perfectly honestly here, I probably thought that too several years ago. I probably swapped those terms. And so let's just attack that question head on. What are the differences between privacy and data protection? David, I think it's very important, first of all, to position ourselves in a system of reference when we're talking about the difference between privacy and data protection, because this is what I primarily had in mind uh, when uh, writing that on Twitter. I had very recently been in a heated Twitter exchange, uh, as they often go. Like we all uh, do. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> on a very particular thing related to uh, the Digital Markets Act that the European Union uh, uh, legislators uh, just uh, agreed on in their negotiations. And I want to to be very clear that privacy and data protection in the European Union legal order primarily 
they are two different things. It's quite consequential that we talk about this difference and we understand this difference. And I want to start with the European Union legal framework as our system of reference, Mm -hmm. because that's where it's just so clear that the two concepts are different. And then, of course, extrapolating from the European Union, we can look at the United States, where it's a bit more difficult to see the difference where privacy as a notion uh, very often uh, refers to both data protection type of provisions and to privacy, respect for private life uh, type of provisions um, and and different uh, legal measures, let's say. So should I start with the difference and how we understand it in the European Union? Yeah, yeah. I I think that's a great place to start, right? Because like you said, and we'll get into this, we have a different approach here in the US, it seems, and a different understanding. And so let's 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 start, like you said, somewhere where it's actually clear what the differences are. Indeed. So the European Union has a charter of fundamental rights. Now, think about it this way. It is a bill of rights. It is exactly like a bill of rights uh, that uh, we also have here in the United States. The only difference is that the Charter of Fundamental Rights in the European Union is much, 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 much younger than the Bill of Rights of the United States. That charter was adopted in 2000, only 22 years ago, right? It is younger than us. (laughs) It is younger than us. It is younger than us. And it became applicable and actually having full legal effects, being able to be invoked in front of a court of law only in 2009. It's very important to mention this. Whoa, yeah. And the Charter of EU Fundamental Rights encompasses two rights among its many different uh, rights in this catalog. One of them, under Article 7, is the right to respect for private life, family life, and confidentiality. The other one, under Article 8, is the right for personal data protection. So we have two different sources of constitutional fundamental law, if you want, Mm -hmm. that protect these two different rights. If they were one and the same, why would we have two different rights uh, and articles, provisions to protect them? I'm curious. Yeah, why do you? (laughs) Exactly. And think about it this way. In the U.S. Bill of Rights, we have different amendments, right? We have the First Amendment. We have the Second Amendment. We have the very much treasured Fourth Amendment when we're talking about privacy. So clearly, each amendment in the Charter would be correspondent to an individual article. Well, we have this Article 7 and Article 8 protecting two different things. Now, I want to make this very easy for our audience to understand. Think about it this way. The right to respect for private life, confidentiality, family life, acts like a shield that protects intimacy, secrecy, confidentiality. It protects that private sphere that's so dear to everyone, including Americans, right? It primarily refers to that right to be let alone, and it has a direct, I would say, connection to this concept in American um, mind and law. Now, the right to personal data protection, which is protected under Article 8, has a completely different philosophy. 
is a type of rule of the road mechanism. It's what it's called in regulatory theory, a transparency tool as opposed to an opacity tool, which is Article 7 and the right to respect for private life. This one under Article 8 presupposes that personal data of individuals are being used, collected, accessed, stored, used in different ways. But what it does is that it provides for a set of safeguards, a set of rules of the road on how using personal data in our day and age, reminder here, how new the charter is, right? So how do we use personal data, data that we can trace back to an individual in a way that this use is fair and that we respect all of the other fundamental rights of the individual, including privacy, but not only, non-discrimination, due process, and other rights that are provided in the EU charter. So the right to personal data protection is a rules of the road type of right. It presupposes personal data is being used, otherwise it wouldn't exist, right? So it starts from the premise that personal data is generated, collected, accessed, used on a daily basis, but then it comes with a set of rules on how we can do that in a way that is fair to the individuals, that ensures a balance uh, of power that overall creates a system where all of the fundamental rights are being respected. And I can go into the details of how these rules of the road have been created. And when they first started to appear in legislation around the world, but primarily in Western Europe and in the United States in the late 60s and early 70s, where we see the first traces of this type of thinking. Yeah, yeah. Let's absolutely go into that because already from what you've said, it sounds so different to what I understand of the U.S. legal system. And so to get into it like really briefly, from my understanding, right, we have the Bill of Rights, we have the Ten Amendments. And like you said, we, we mentioned that Fourth Amendment there, the right against having a, an undue search and seizure. But we don't really have like anything because our because our constitution is so old, we don't have anything that even correlates or, or comes to a close analog with this understanding that, hey, look, data is going to get used. Data is going to get processed. Data is being processed. Instead, it feels like in the United States, what we have is a lot of people doing something or a lot of companies doing something that is seemingly allowed until it isn't, until it is tested, until someone straight up says, wait a minute, that's not okay. And it sounds like this system in the EU is very different. It's this idea that says, look, this is happening, so maybe we should recognize it, and then we should set up some safeguards. And so I would love to hear more about, let's drill down into this, into how it worked, and and where these ideas came from. Absolutely. So the history of this way of thinking about the safeguards we need in place for data protection and how we use personal data in computerized files, so in automated systems, started to manifest in the late 60s, early 70s, 
in that uh, period of time, we actually had a buzzing thought process, both in the United States and in Western Europe. It's very important to mention that because back then, remember that we still had the Iron Curtain. And Eastern Europe was a place where we had anything but private life and respect for private life back then. So in Western Europe, in the United States, the parliament or Congress, the governments were thinking about how to deal with the reality that computerized files about citizens are starting to appear either in local administration, either in credit bureaus and in different scenarios where up until that time, everything was on paper and you had paper files. So they started to think about the risks that appear with automated personal data systems as they were uh, thought uh, of uh, at that point. And in this context, We had, for example, in the United States, a very, very influential uh, report, the Records, Computers, and the Rights of Citizens report um, that is also known as the FIPS report, the Fair Information Practice Principles report, which was commissioned by the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare back then, and which was published in 1973. Now, This report is very influential, and I urge everyone that has the slightest, smallest interest in this topic to look it up. It's available in full form, free of charge, a scanned PDF on the, um, I think it's on the Department of Justice right now website, but it's available there on the internet. And it's really fascinating how it goes into the details of understanding the impact of automatization and of computers on the rights of individuals here in the United States. So this was all done through the lens of United States citizens and life and social interactions. This report spoke of growing concerns that automated personal data systems, and now I quote, present a serious potential for harmful consequences, including infringement of basic liberties. Then it went on and spoke of ways in which the legislator uh, here in the U.S. can help to assure that decisions about individual citizens are made on the basis of accurate, up-to-date information. And The report also demanded a hard look at the adequacy of the existing mechanisms for guaranteeing citizens all of the protections of due process in relation to the records that were maintained about them. So what I quoted just now is part of the forward letter of this report, and it comes to show the type of concern that the brightest minds of the time had with regard to uh, computerized personal files. And this particular report, after analyzing the situation as it was back then, uh, early 70s, well, it came up with a set of recommendations. And it said that, look, in the face of what's happening, it is important that personal data is kept up to date and it's accurate. So individuals should have 
a right to have accurate data kept on their files. And they could achieve that by having a right of correcting the data. Oh. So, you know, requesting uh, whoever holds the file to have that data corrected. Very important. This report also identified the right to access one's own data as being essential because how can you correct data that you don't know uh, exists? <laughs> yeah. It also uh, spoke of limited retention periods. So it technically came up with a set of safeguards that individuals should have in relation with these computerized files about them that ensures their basic liberties, their due process is respected. Now, if you compare the recommendations in this report to the basic underlying principles that you see in the GDPR, and actually sometimes you have even like word by word ideas, it's the same, it's outstanding. <laughs> and this is it. Now, at the same time when this was happening in the United States, same conversations were happening in Western Europe. And in 1970, exactly 1970, we have the first recognized, dedicated personal data protection law that was adopted in one of the German uh, lenders. So in one of the uh, states that formed Germany, right? And it was in Hesse. That's the first data protection law in the world adopted in 1970. And it had already some thinking that shows up in there in terms of individual rights, in terms of transparency, uh, you know, the fact that whenever someone keeps a file about an individual, they should be transparent about it. And we already see in 1970, some forms of the safeguards that we can now recognize in modern data protection laws. However, they were not as advanced as the thinking we see in this report in the United States. At the same time, the UK had the Younger Committee, the UK Parliament was looking into these issues as well, and the Younger, com uh, younger was one of the um, members of Parliament, right? And he and his commission were thinking about the same type of questions. How do we ensure liberties and rights and civil liberties are being respected when we are seeing automized computerized files? And they came up with their report, uh, I think one year after the US, but I've seen references to the fact that at least the Younger Committee in the UK and this committee in the US were actually communicating with each other. And you can actually tell that because you see their recommendations are very much aligned. Uh, one other important set of principles that this early laws came up uh, with and early reports and recommendations was actually this fair information practice principles. And you can absolutely trace all of them to the GDPR and its Article 5, where you have principles such as purpose limitation, data minimization. And I will just give you an example. You know, data minimization means that you should only collect the data and use the data that is necessary for the purpose for which you need it. So don't cast a very wide net, collect, any data that you find out there and say that, hmm, this is interesting because I may, I may find a use for it in the future. The data minimization principle 
requires that you should only collect that data that you know you need for what it is that you're doing uh, today with your data. Um, the purpose limitation principle uh, says that whenever you're collecting and processing data, you need to have a purpose in mind and that purpose needs to be lawful, needs to be well-defined, and you can only use the data you're collecting for that purpose. So these are some of the principles that legislators back then came up with and that have been encoded in many laws afterwards, even here and there in some laws in the United States. But there's an entire history there, like after this Hugh report the report itself, the one from 73 in the United States, recommended Congress to act and pushed Congress to adopt a general comprehensive data protection law. But even if several bills were introduced in response to this report with individual rights of access, correction, erasure, and so on, with the data minimization, purpose limitation, principles, and so on, even with independent supervision under a dedicated authority that was to be created, well, these laws actually slowly died, <laughs> these bills slowly died in Congress, yeah. and they ended up to only manifest as the U.S. Privacy Act of 1974, which is very limited in scope. It only applies to federal agencies and how they deal with computerized files, and it's quite limited in scope. So this is a bit of the history of how, how all of this started. <laughs> Everything you said, I didn't know. And it's so, like, it, it's really difficult to try and explain why I think Everything you said is just so fascinating because some of the things you were talking about here, like I, I never knew about this report, right? The 1973 report, records, computers, and the right of citizens, it sounds like it started with, and particularly that they were talking about a right to correct, a right to access, that there was limited retention. When you told me those things, it was like learning that like bills that are in the United States Congress today and in individual states today that haven't become law, those bills got their inspiration 50 years ago. <laughs> and like, that's a lot to process. Like, that's a lot to like, oh, like, like you said, the right to correct, the right to access these ideas, these fair information principles, you know, about things like data minimization, about purpose limitation, the fact that these things were being discussed in the 1970s, and that they didn't get materialized into law, at least in the GDPR, until 2018, right? And that they're not materialized into law in 46 states in the United States. <laughs> like, there's, I believe, only four states currently that have a specific data protection law. California is one of them. I think Utah just became one. And I, I, I don't know the two others. I forget them. But it's just saying that, like, these things happened so long ago, the, the best way I could explain it, there is an extraordinarily famous building by Frank Lloyd Wright, who is an extraordinarily famous architect, and that building is called Falling Water, and you look at it today, and it looks like it could have been built today. And you look at it 20 years ago, and it looks like it could have been built 20 years ago. It, it, it is very close to an idea of what we call like timeless, very close to an idea of modern timelessness. 
And I think a lot of people would be like, oh, that kind of, you know, probably 1970, 1960. This building was built in 1939. And to know that this level of modernity had already been pushed to the bleeding edge back in 1939, and the fact that it looks like it hasn't aged, that's kind of the feeling I got. That's kind of the feeling I got of like, look, these concepts of data protection have been around a long time, and people have known about them. And and this story you told were like, look, Congress got recommendations and it's like, what became of it? It's like, oh, well, you know, it, it didn't become what we wanted it to become. Gosh, that sounds so familiar, you know? Like we, we have so much energy and like, oh, we're going to get it right this time. We're going to do it. And then you don't. <laughs> like, you just don't. It's, it's disappointing, but it's, it's the same story over and over again. And it is disappointing in that way. It's frustrating, right? Because it is that same story. But it's also exciting because wow, I did not know that. You know, I did not know that these ideas have been around for so long. I wanted to steer a bit because we've talked a lot about, again, what, what data protection can do, how it was formulated, and, and right, it's this recognition that data is getting processed. And because of that, how can we process data in a way that still respects civil liberties, still respects due process, still doesn't allow for discrimination, all of these things. And what I wanted to target in on then is, can data protection also achieve just privacy? And also, should it? Yes. The short answer to that is yes. Uh, It absolutely can achieve privacy as well. The challenge with data protection, though, is that it needs to balance all of the rights, and sometimes they are competing rights. So that that's challenging indeed. But it's important to note that the ultimate purpose of data protection is not to achieve privacy at all costs, uh, at least not in the EU legal system where these concepts have been already manifesting differently, even at the highest source of a law. So It can achieve privacy, but it will not only strive to achieve privacy in the detriment of other competing rights that might ensure fairness in regards to processing personal data and fairness towards individuals. I would say it's important to have this uh, distinction being made. Sometimes you might actually need to process more personal information in order to achieve fairness. Think about it this way. How do you identify bias in some of the more complex processing operations and automated systems that are being built right now if you don't account for specific sensitive characteristics like race, like sexual orientation, right? Very sensitive data. So, It's a very, very tricky balance to strike, and it's a very difficult field to navigate. And this is uh, absolutely the reason why I have been so much into it uh, ever since uh, law school. And I have not done anything else other than thinking about this field after my graduation. (laughs) With all of that background, right, with all of that devoted study, 
I also wanted to understand why is it then that we seem to muddle these concepts so frequently? Because I've seen it as well. You know, I've seen it online. And again, I, I will fully admit that I was probably a guilty party to this many years ago, where I just thought they were kind of interchangeable, not just interchangeable terms, but I think I probably also thought the same thing. I thought that data protection was privacy. Data protection only cared about privacy. And I, I you know, sometimes probably to this day have this this thought that privacy is the superseding right. Like if something else gets harmed, I'm like, eh, whatever, you know? And like, that's maybe not how things are supposed to go. And so I wanted to ask again, you know, what, why is it that we just seem to confuse these things so regularly? It's very easy to, to make this confusion. And we have all been guilty of it. But guilty is a very big word. Um, <laughs> we're also very justified, you know, to, to make this confusion. And it happens all the time with privacy professionals, even if this is what they're doing all day. This has many reasons why. First and foremost, it's a matter of terminology as well. I mean, when you're hearing about personal data, so data protection immediately makes you think of personal data. And if it's personal data, it has to be private, right? And it means that whatever it is that you're doing needs to protect your privacy. So it's a matter of terminology. It's certainly a matter also of even if we're looking at laws and the highest sort of level of laws in the hierarchy of laws, even in the European Union. We have the European Convention of Human Rights, ECHR, which has Article 8, the right to respect for private, family life, and confidentiality. And you have that Article 8, and that's all. This is a convention that was signed in the 50s. And as jurisprudence and case law evolved at the European Court of Human Rights, we have seen how data protection concerns started to be treated differently and separately under the same hat of Article 8. So there is certainly a connection there, even when we're thinking in terms of fundamental human rights. And this is just because this right is so new. Now, to get you even more confused than the audience as well, the European Court of Human Rights developed a right to a healthy environment. So sort of an environmental type of human right, a right to a healthy environment, also yeah. under Article 8, the right to respect for private life and family life. Because back in the 50s, nobody would enshrine, you know, in a fundamental human rights convention, something that had to do with a clean environment. So because privacy is such a malleable concept, it's just so, it can go into many directions, it became this very generous umbrella hat, you know, of, of yeah. different concepts. So then this is why it's absolutely easy to, to make a confusion like that. However, at least when we're talking about the European Union and European Union law, more and more, it's an error to make that mistake. 
I can confidently say, you know, it, it's an error. <laughs> However, if we're moving into other jurisdictions, and I'm now particularly referring to the United States, it's absolutely understandable because here everything goes under privacy, right? As you were mentioning, even HIPAA, and I love that example, David, that you gave at the beginning with HIPAA, because that's a perfect example. And let me tell you this, the right to data portability is one of the individual rights under the GDPR as well. And it was introduced by the GDPR in the European Union in 2018, right? But here in the US, you already had a right to data portability, but only with regard to protected health information that falls under HIPAA. But the mere idea that a person can get their own data from one place, like a medical services provider, and have that data transferred, ported to another place, another medical services provider, that is actually an instance of data protection manifesting itself because, you know, you can have your data moved in between two providers or whatever, more providers where you need it to be, right? Now, that's really about making that data available to another entity because that's the fair thing to do in relation to you in your quality as a patient, let's say, right? But if you think about it this way, it's not the most private thing, right? <laughs> because you multiply the entities that can look into your medical file. So I think this is a great example of where privacy and data protection have very different feels and nuances to them. I hadn't thought of it that way. And it's such a easy, I think, way to grasp this, right? That porting your data over to more providers, which is something that we all do, right? Like, if you move, you have a new doctor. That's kind of it. If you have a bad experience with a doctor, you get a new one. If your doctor retires, and you maybe need to go to a different network, if you change jobs, oh, because health insurance is so tied to employment here in the United States. And your new job just has a different insurance program. And so you have to get a new doctor, maybe a new, you know, a new network entirely. You're moving that data over. And to ensure that that is seamless, right, you, you have to port it over. But the very fact that you are multiplying the number of people, the number of providers who can see that data, that is actually that is the opposite that like that butts up against privacy, you know, that some, some interpretations of privacy would be as simple as no one gets to see this. And yet this law that everyone misconstrues as about privacy is actually about multiplying. And it's like, what a lovely thing. Like what a fun little kernel to try and pull apart. I wanted to see if we could dive into what are the consequences of confusing these concepts for one another? And I wonder, right, is the consequence, is there like a bigger risk when these things are mixed up at like a legislative level, like rather than just like a, like a me level, like me getting it wrong? Like, is there that big of a consequence? Or are, are there bigger risks when people who write the laws are getting it wrong? Both angles, you know, I'm, I'm just curious. 
Absolutely. I think your intuition here is right. It matters more that those in the right roles to adopt laws or best practices around these issues have to get it right. They need to get it right. I would also say that it matters a lot if individuals start understanding the difference and start caring about exercising the control they have over how their data is being processed. And this is important because if you're only thinking about these issues as keeping your passwords safe, right, and leave me alone on the internet and, and, and things like that, you are missing out of a lot of things that you could be doing to have a fairer digital world around you. So I'll give you one example because um, I'm working with uh, one of my colleagues, Sebastiao, uh, for a report that's looking at individual cases under the GDPR in the European Union and how the GDPR is being applied to automated decision-making. And I was reading a case yesterday evening about someone in Austria that applied to obtain a very convenient subscription from their mobile phone services provider, which would have seen this person paying 10 euros per month. So that's about, let's say, 12 US dollars for their unlimited mobile phone subscription, which is a great deal, right? (laughs) Now... The mobile phone services provider told this person that they cannot enjoy the offer because their credit score is not high enough. So they did not have enough credit worthiness in order to enjoy the offer. Hmm. Now, this person could have just, you know, walked away and (laughs) tried to find another good offer, but the GDPR actually gives this person the right to understand how their credit score in very much detail came to be and to ask for access to copies of the personal data that went into their credit score, not high level, not high level personal data as we have here under US law, but copies of the actual data and also information about the logic involved in reaching their credit score. So what the person did was they actually went against the credit rating company. They went and submitted a complaint to the Data Protection Authority. The Data Protection Authority in Austria ordered the credit rating company to give this person the logic involved in how their credit score came to be and how those algorithms were working and details about the personal data that went into the credit score. And because the company challenged that decision of the authority, now we are in court proceedings. But think about it this way, like for such, you know, for their $12 monthly phone subscription, this person was aware of the rights they had and they just went ahead and exercised them. Ideally, you will not need at one point to just go and on a case-by-case basis, go challenge everyone to understand (laughs) how they 
profiled you, you know, and whether that credit score is correct or not, hopefully everyone in, in this environment or most of the entities, most of the companies will start applying all of these principles by default. But in the meantime, this person said, well, I have my rights. I can go challenge this to the Data Protection Authority. I can find out uh, the logic involved in this automated processing, and I'm, I'm going to do that. And this has nothing to do with privacy. You know, there's yeah. no intimacy. Um, you know, you're breaching my secrets or anything like that. No, this has to do with how personal data about this individual were being used by a credit rating company and then further used by this uh, telecommunication service provider to exclude an individual from a great offer. <laughs> you know, yeah, this is it. It's not I, about privacy. I, I absolutely adore this story because there's something that kind of happens when it comes to data. We're going to get into this, right? We're actually going to talk about data privacy as our last question, but to sort of breach that topic, we talk a lot about data privacy on this show, and we also talk a bit about data privacy rights. And there's something that kind of happens when you talk to people about like about what data privacy rights are. And you know, in California, we do we do have more data privacy rights than other states. And you get to this wall when you try to convince people that this stuff matters because the wall is like there's nothing exciting about exercising your data privacy rights, like. For a lot of folks, if you tell them like, hey, did you know you can access your data? You can like port it over. They're like They're like, oh, okay. Like, why does that, <laughs> what does that mean to me? Why does that matter? How do I use that? And this story is such a lovely example of like, I have these rights and it's such a simple like motivation too. Like this, this fellow wanted a good deal on, you know, on their mobile phone and they didn't get it. And and the reason they were told is like, hey, sorry, your credit score isn't good enough. And this person turned around and said, eh, no, like, no, your your math isn't good enough. Show your work, show your work to, to, to tell me how did you get to this conclusion? And it's such a fun, like simple, like, like rejection. Like, no, I'm gonna stick it back to you. I don't believe that this was correct. And, you know, to finally have an example of like, look, you can actually accomplish things with these rights rather than wouldn't you just want to ask a company for your data? And then you're like, okay, I'll, I guess I'll, okay, you know, I'll peruse it. I don't know what it, I don't know what it accomplishes. And so this is one of those examples. It can accomplish something like this. It is cumbersome. Absolutely. I agree. But it is something that can now be done that very likely could not have been done years ago. I wanted to end here, like I said, we're going to talk about data privacy because we've talked so much here about data protection and we've talked about privacy. We've talked about other rights. But I think some folks are probably thinking, okay, I know about that. I know about this. What what the heck is data privacy then, right? What is, what is this mishmash, you know, where we have data protection and we have privacy and we seem to have whipped them into a singular term, at least here in the United States. So what is data privacy? privacy and and what is like what is the difference between it and data protection that's a, an excellent question uh because we have seen the term data privacy proliferating so much especially after the gdpr became applicable and it was so influential both in the eu and here in the us frankly to my mind, data privacy is technically data protection, but 
with a US flair, right? And this is because I think more and more professionals, at least professionals in the United States, see that there is a difference between privacy per se and that right to be let alone and this other set of safeguards and rules. You need to name it somehow, right? You can't go just calling everything privacy because then there will be a lot of confusion. And I think this is where it comes from. We needed to call it something and data privacy was right there. It wasn't data protection, which immediately makes uh, one thing of uh, primarily perhaps cybersecurity, you know, or physical ways to protect data from unauthorized access, right? So I think this is where data privacy comes from. Now, there is no particular higher source of law that speaks of data privacy here in the US. Let me be clear, in the EU, it doesn't make sense from a legal point of view to name anything data privacy. So it's either (laughs) privacy or respect for private life and confidentiality on one hand, or data protection, personal data protection or protection of personal data on the other hand. So data privacy is kind of this exactly mix of entity. I I, I don't even know how to call it, but I think substantially it designates this set of safeguards that's meant to, to be data protection in the end. Gabriela, that's all I had for today's show. I just wanted to thank you so much for explaining everything and for coming on today's episode. Absolutely my pleasure, David. It's been truly a pleasure to be able to talk about this. It's definitely one of my favorite topics in the whole world. (laughs) So I'm always happy to explain a bit of this complexity. And I'm happy that this time it was for you and your audience. To our listeners at home, We'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak again with former guest Tanya Janka about why our software is developed in insecure ways. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. <laughs>